0: Hi, and welcome to Into the Coliverse Office Hours, an open forum podcast that takes us deep into the minds and work of our faculty here at the College of Liberal Arts at UT Austin.
1: Join us, your hosts, Frederick Luis Aldama and Daniel Oppenheimer, as we learn of the many issues discussed and deliberated by our cutting edge faculty who are transforming the world today.
0: Hello, everyone. I'm Dan Oppenheimer, Director of Public Affairs for the College of Liberal Arts. And welcome to today's alumni book event, featuring Frederick Luis Aldama and his new comic book series Pyroclast. Frederick is the Jacob and Francis Sanger Mosker Chair in the Humanities at UT Austin, also the founder and director of the Latinx Pop Lab and the annual BIPOC Pop Comics, Gaming and Animation Arts Expo and Symposium. His superhero name is Professor Latinx. Uh, You'll have to tell me after this talk how I can get my own superhero name, Frederick. Um, Hmm. He is an award-winning author, co-author, editor, and co-editor of dozens of books and the editor of numerous book series. He's the producer and co-creator of the first documentary on Latinx comic book superheroes. He's been inducted into the Texas Institute of Letters, the National Hmm. Cartoonist Society, and the Ohio State University's Office of Diversity and Inclusion Hmm. Hall of Fame. And forthcoming works of his, in addition to this comic, include his novel, The Absolute, Absolutely Almost True Adventures of Max Rodriguez, the graphic novel, Labyrinth Born*, and the comic book series, The Steam Punkera Chronicles. He's also the host of our in-house podcast, Into the Coliverse, in which he talks to his faculty colleagues about their lives and work. So, Frederick, thank you for being here. Thank you for doing this. Congratulations on this book and the others. I want to start with a little bit of your origin story relative to comics before we get to Pyroclast. So tell us how you first got interested in comic books and how you became a scholar of them um and then obviously ultimately a creator of them. But but you know what's your comic book origin story?
1: Yeah, thanks Dan. So origin story, I was born in Mexico City and Um, Things didn't work out there with my dad, so my mom threw us on um, a bus, brought us to California, and at that point, my maternal tongue was Spanish, but the school teachers didn't want us to speak that dirty Mexican uh, in the classrooms, and so didn't feel like literacy in the school environment was something I wanted to you know that was welcoming but luckily there was a little store a little tienda at the corner of our street and there was a spin rack and the the shop owner was really sweet and would let me just basically after school I would go there and I would sit with the latest you know fantastic four x-men comics um um you know whatever was dropping and that's that became like matching images with words, basically, my school. And there was also something else really cool happening in that space, which is that, you know, I got to see characters that were um, Mm -hmm. either kind of the rejects that were had a a safe space, like Professor X's mansion, um, Mm -hmm. where they could, you know, really develop their full potentialities, but also those who, you know, like, Um, The thing who basically, you know, um, was impenetrable to like bullying and stuff like that. So it was for me, comics, especially superhero comics, is very much a part of my own origin story. And it took me, you know, um, I read them like mad as a kid Um, in high school, I continued reading them, but less so because, you know, the you know, high school gets busy. And then I found my way back to them in college with Love and Rockets, the Bros Hernandez, very much the kind of uh, pioneers or some of the pioneers of what we call alternative comics, which came out of underground comics, and found my way back to them. But I knew once I was in a PhD, so that was at Berkeley when I was in my PhD program at Stanford, which was literature, but a lot of cognitive science. Um, that eventually I would want to come back to comics, but I was pretty much told, "Look, at this point, you can't write a dissertation on comics. Um, do that later." So, luckily, I spun through the early sort of phases of you know promotion and tenure. Um, by my fourth year as a professor, I was a full professor. And I was able to then turn my attention to the thing that I had wanted to do for the longest time, and I wrote what became Your Brain on Latino Comics, my first book in that area. So there you go. And now I just finished teaching my Intro to Comics Studies class um, here at UT with undergrads, and it was they're just like amazing. I love my students, and we I took them on this incredible journey both learning history, but also learning conceptual tools, um, learning um, all the kinds of ways that comics tell stories visually and verbally, but where the visual is the dominant. And then the other class that I um, just finished teaching, which also includes some comics, smartphone storytelling and wellness. There you go.
0: One thing I was thinking as you were talking was... You know, when you were growing up, you you sort of gobbled up the comics which were on offer, which were the ones, you know, whatever Spider Man, Fantastic Four, I don't know what Superman, mm-hmm. Batman, whatever. You know, and and it, and and it, and there wasn't a sort of. I'm not sure. I guess my question is, was there a Latino comic book or comic character that you even read when you were younger, or was it kind of older? And then I guess more broadly, like, what is the canon? I mean, you don't literally have to go through mm-hmm. it all. Or has part of your career as a scholar been, as scholar and somebody who's involved in the industry, been essentially drawing the lines around things to sort mm-hmm. of create a tradition and then obviously at this point sort of trying to extend it? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, thanks. Yeah, that's a great question, Dan. So part of uh, my scholarship is um, archival. And that might seem to l- sound a little strange, but it's a kind of living, breathing archive, which is what comics is. My book that I won an Eisner for is called Latinx Superheroes in Mainstream Comics. And that was really going back into the archive and making visible, um, not a huge presence, but a significant, while small, still significant presence of latino latine latinx comic book superheroes all the way back to zorro actually mm. so you know we have to think about um a lot of people forget that zorro was actually based on joaquin murietta uh, one of our super, our 19th century like you know superhero bandits who stole from the rich to give to the poor um and that zorro was the inspiration for batman Just Mm. there you go. So, you know, already, you know, we have to kind of think about, yeah, looking to places that haven't been looked to in the past to actually see our significant presence, even if it's been a shadowed presence. Now, as far as me as a kid, we had El Dorado, which was on Super Friends, a cartoon, which was a kind of mishmash of all sorts of stuff. Which was pretty typical of representation, and unfortunately, still typical of representation. So that you have symbol symbologies and mytholo- mythological signs or icons taken from Peru and from Mexico and from God knows where. And you throw them all onto this superhero, and suddenly he's like the Latino, right? Um, without any idea that they all have their, their very sep- their separate traditions, cultures. Um, Etc. But El Dorado, and then of course, White Tiger. Um, White Tiger, George Perez, arguably to, still to today, one of the most complex, rich, and exciting visually Latino, Latinx superheroes ever created when was that um, when was was when i was that? in mid 70s so and he was in the in the um the de- the deadly hands of kung fu stuff is where he appeared and then he finally started to get his own space as a superhero but um yeah so we're talking yeah just to give us some context mid 70s i came to white tiger through an uncle and i was a little bit older i was already pushing 10 11 But yeah, White Tiger definitely struck me. He's Afro Latino and proud. He's Boricua, you know, Puerto Rican Latino, and he's got an Afro, and he's like super grounded. He's super smart. He's got higher, you know, advanced degrees and everything, right? And and yet he's very still, very street. So like they with White Tiger did everything right. Now that isn't to say that.
0: Who was the, sorry, who was the they in that case? Is that one of the, is that Marvel or DC or is that some independent publisher?
1: No, no, that's Marvel and that was George Perez. And in fact, it was his kind of, um, the person that was helming that series, Marv Wolfman was like, I'm going to give this to you, but you've got to like sharpen your visual storytelling skills and come back and let's get do this and in fact that's what actually happened and it created yeah the one of the most significant superheroes in the now dc marvel of course you get people into that conversation that's a whole other rabbit hole right um and you know i'm marvel i'm dc you know that kind of stuff but we can we can go there if you want i have a well i i that's sort of,
0: a, it's not so much that, I guess one of the things I was thinking about when you're talking about, you know, that he was a sort of politically self-conscious character is, and I, and I don't know this, you know, people talk about, say, Star Trek, for instance, as being a franchise that that for its time, historically, has been was pretty progressive. So even if we can look back in things and, you know, in the Star Trek canon and wince a little bit, there's a sort of awareness that they were trying to do things that were politically progressive mm-hmm. at the time. Mm-hmm is that true of comics as well? Like was Marvel comics or DC comics, were they pretty good for their time or were Mm -hmm. they more sort of comparable to sort of, let's say the general entertainment industry, which, you know, wasn't, wasn't anything special sort of in terms Mm -hmm. of moments, but wasn't sort of more broadly
1: a kind of force for political. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I think that's a really good question, Dan, you know, one thing that I learned with Latinx superheroes and mainstream comics and the archival work and the kind of scholarship that you know I put into that is we want to hope that there is a kind of forward trajectory of or teleology, if you want to use a fancy word, of like improvement. Um it's actually not really that's the story isn't that. It's a story with ruptures of like Incredibleness, like White Mm. Tiger, Um, but then it's also filled with like a character, also Marvel Firebird, who maybe on the at first glance is an interesting Latina superhero, social worker by day, Firebird superhero by um, you know by well you know by night, um, and um, there's some complexity, some backstory, but in the end. Usually, the Latinos end up being honestly like the janitors cleaning up, um, doing all the work and doing all the cleanup. And the white superheroes, um, you know, for decades would be the ones that would get the credit. And I'm literally like plots that do that,
0: <laughs> yeah. You mean where there's like this person is a superhero. But they're kind of support staff superhero or something like that. Okay. Uh,
1: um, and then, you know, you do have the, like, what you doing kind of, like, stuff. Right. You're, and, you know, it's like, it's obvious. We know this with TV today, TV yesterday, film today, film yesterday, pop culture, storytelling spaces. Like... Get the writers in the writing room that know this stuff, that have like live and breathe it, that, you know, I mean, it's obvious, right? You know, it's like Coco, when Coco, when they were doing that. And, um, you know, I share the story a lot because I think it's emblematic. They, first of all, Disney tried to trademark Day of the Dead. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we were, all of us like, what? And then one of my friends, Lalo Alcaraz, who's a political satirical cartoonist in L.A., um, got talking like a, just it took me a second to lock in. Coco was that film that came out a few years
0: ago, right? That was the Yeah, Disney. Coco's yeah.
1: huge, he huge goes hit into,
0: goes into the realm of the dead,
1: and yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. It could have gone so wrong. Like, <laughs> their storyboard that I was privy to seeing had all sorts of like um, glitches in terms of cultural Latino cultural representation. So, luckily, they pulled in. You know, some of us, Lalo especially, and brought us into consult, and we're like, "What? No, we wouldn't." Our grandma's not throwing a spoon at Miguelito; they're throwing a sandal. That's what they do in our families—just little things. Yeah. So, so anyway, back to your point, which is, it's not a series. It's not we can, um, you know, we can't think of it as like um, a history of progress and getting yeah. better. We can think of it as like these ruptures yeah so i mean i want to get to so so now let's get
0: to kind of the origin story for pyroclast and then this larger series of which he's a part but i don't mean literally we'll get to like what literally the character story is but what is the backstory on how this comic universe came into existence sort of professionally industry-wise Can yeah it
1: yeah no thanks dan because it is important and it relates exactly to what we were just talking um getting Latinos in the writing room, you know, Latine, Latinx in the writing room, getting them to um, do this the actual visuals on these, right? Um, um, both. So, both storytelling visually and verbally. Um, so, Chispa is a imprint of Scout Comics, which is a big comic book. It's not DC Marvel, but it's big, you mm-hmm. know, and they... Two friends of mine, David and Hector, um, created Chispa Comics with the idea precisely to open a space for us to get our stories, our superhero stories, um, our genre kind of um, comic stories out there. And the idea behind Pyroclast is that he's the second of 13 Mexican-American teens um, born all across the U.S. over a two-week period who begin to exhibit superpowers. And as they grapple with these new abilities, they're contacted by um, this figure, Father Tonal, who's in Texas. And he runs, according to the, the 13, a Catholic college, best in the nation. Um, and all 13 receive a scholarship to go there, um, so my number two of the thirteen pyroclast um, is also importantly that each one is born during the beginning of what is what we kind of go back in history to the sacred, the last sacred Mesoamerican cycle of fifty-two days, hmm. where unless balance is restored according to the to that calendar um chaos and uh there will be chaos and chaos basically in conflict with the world right in with order and so their powers pyroclass power included um is linked to his indigenous astrological sign according to the Nawa calendar um and so yes there's Not only getting it right in terms of like Latinx culture and life and family and trying to get all of our different stories about in and around that out there, but a very, um, say, color conscious uh, writing with a depth that links to a different mythology than, say, the Norse mythology of Thor and Loki or the Greek mythologies that, you know, underpin much of the rest of like the kind of MCU and so on. Um, Now, do you want me to take a pause before I jump in to talk about Pyroclast?
0: Yeah, yes, because um, I wanted to ask about that. It's because it's not just the location in a mythology, it's sort of a creation of a mythology, right? It's a selection of, and this is true with how Marvel used Norse mythology, you know, all the way to thinking about Black Panther and, you know, this fictional country of Wakanda, which is a melange of sort of science fictional elements and then certain elements from, I think, different African cultures. And so that's a complicated, interesting. So were you involved in the sort of creation of this larger mythology that underlies this whole universe Were you sort of handed the, st- the sort of elements of that and then from that you kind of made had made choices about what Pyroclas story would be and how really do you think mm-hmm. about the creation of a new mythology
1: but that's rooted in an existing mythology because there's choice hmm. making yeah yeah good question so you know this in a way is The Chizpa verse is a kind of a marvel um, factory-style operation. In that Hector and David um, lay a outline, very kind of um, light outline for the building up of you know what will become the Chizpa verse, and then each one of us participating in. Creating um our respective superheroes can um interpret and develop you know where we're gonna go with that with so but with this light outline in place, I knew that pete lumeras his thing was that he could you know turn. Some somehow turned to stone or hardened. His epidermal layer was going to harden for me. That's how I was going to do it, and not only because of my love of the thing, Ben Grimm, but also because it worked really well with um, his particular symbol, which is the sort of the chispa, the the spark when you um, when you strike arms, you know, when you strike two things together. And so yeah, so pyroclasts very much linked to that symbol, but then me um, you know, working, you know, in conversation with David and Hector, just like they do did at Marvel, like with Stanley and and Kirby. Okay, sounds good. Go do it. Yep, yep. Or you need to tweak this a little bit so it fits with this
0: and 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 Yeah, it's interesting because I was gonna say when you're thinking about the creation mythology, you're also obviously drawing on existing Mm -hmm. Comic book mythology, right? So Pyroclast looks like the thing, and you can correct me because I you go a lot deeper on this stuff than I do. But like at first glance, he looks like the thing. You're talking about this university, this Catholic college, which of course reminds me of uh, what is it, Professor X's school for mm-hmm. gifted, what is it, gifted mm-hmm. youngsters or something like that. Mm-hmm. Not that? That's I mean, and that's I'm sure drawing on previous you know narratives about special academies for mm-hmm. you know gifted people and things like that so it's also bringing in the existing more familiar comic book mythology that kind of at this point all of us know i mean i'm sure i had the experience and you've had the experience which is when we were growing up and we were comic book nerds it felt like something that like we knew and other kids knew but it wasn't it wasn't the lingua franca of american culture and now of course it is right now we Mm -hmm. all the comic books and that is almost american pop culture in some sense so you're drawing on that and you're Trying to plug into that as well, I assume. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, definitely. And remember too that um, you know that Professor X, which <laughs> um, is—it's funny. Just really quickly, that's where Professor Latinx comes from. My nickname in the comics community because all the the Latinx creatives were at a certain point like talk to Fred. Oh, Fred knows every, everyone. They, he knows like where we all are on the planet. So, and then someone created one of my. Com- one of the comics creators created me with a Cerebro um, and, prof- and <laughs> you're Professor Latin.
0: You're, you're zooming <laughs> in,
1: you're seeing all the Latino
0: comic creators yeah. and the, the new talents who barely emerged yet. Yeah. Some, yeah.
1: some little so, village. But, yeah, absolutely. And of course, remember X-Men really is, um, kind of comes into its own and is speaking to and res- in resonate- resonating with um, you know, really important um, s- like moments in civil rights, brown uh, power movements, black power movements, etc. So, you know, for, you know, the col- Catholic College, the, you know, Professor X Mansion, you know, these are safe spaces for learning and realizing the full potentialities of those who have otherwise been you know, either not seen or patrolled and surveillanced and disallowed from you know the access to all of their you know possible ways that they can flourish in the world. Well, and it, it occurs to
0: me as you're talking, it's also when you're when you're thinking about just the real world counterparts with civil rights. Part of it is not just when we're we're thinking about how the dominant culture, the white culture, treated. You know, people of other races, ethnicities, part of it is a sort of contempt, but part of it is a fear, right? Is a fear of imagined power, Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. which is corresponds to these oppressed, but also profoundly powerful mutants in Mm -hmm. the X Men, in in all of the X Men narratives. Uh, Yeah. And of course, in that sense, the, the power is literal in the real sense the power is a kind of often fear of some sort of uh, fear of retribution or something like that or Mm -hmm. sexual power or all of these things that are sort of projections of white fears Mm -hmm. rather than necessarily any reality in in these communities but but there's really strong correspondences between these
1: different things Mm -hmm. absolutely yeah definitely and I mean we need we need our superheroes more than ever now I do understand that there is a certain um I would I would actually say call it MCU or Marvel Cinematic Universe fatigue not superhero universe yeah you know, superhero fatigue um and I think a lot of that I mean that's another rabbit hole but I think a lot of that is um, um just kind of formulaic storytelling and also excessive use of CGI I think we're just we, we, want, we want our superheroes. We need our superheroes. And we will always like, want that kind of wish fulfillment possibility in our lives. Um, and so that's why comics, in the way that comics can really be exploratory and innovative, storytelling will, be, you know, will nourish our souls. But um, um, so, yeah, so don't be fooled. By, like, the fatigue, it's not really, it's, that's not superheroes in the way that we, Dan and I and others, are thinking about superheroes. So let's get to Pyroclast. What's his story? So, yeah, Pyroclast and, you know, uh, Dan and others who write fiction, you know, there's, a, there's bits of us in everything that we write, and there's a lot of bits of meat in Pete. Lumeras, who is, now I was not a popular football quarterback, he is, um, <laughs> but I did live in a small town in California that I call Nowheresville, basically, and some of my other stuff. Um, but here I call it San Sebastian, and there is a very specific reason for it being called San Sebastian. San Sebastian is actually the patron saint, informal patron saint of um, uh, gay uh you know, LGBTQ folks um mm. um you know his sacrifices depicted with the arrows going yeah. in yeah yeah hitting yeah. him at various points yeah mm-hmm. um he's Irish Mexican and but like me and um yeah he's likes working he's like you know his origin story he's like super popular but doesn't care um he like work he loves working on his triumph motorbike with whatever spare parts he can afford he listens to he's even though it's contemporary he listens to um some of my favorites you know in the 90s like jane's addiction and nine inch nail sound garden um so he's like you know in, he's part me and he's part like wish fulfillment me right yeah. um i was the last kid picked for any s- <laughs> sports right <laughs> Pick all Dhamma if you wanna lose, right? Um so he's got a he's got a little sister, um sassy, smart, super like politicized. Um the you know, he's living with his dear George or Jorge, who's a local librarian, um more closer to say my age range. Um and what's you know, so he's got a full life. He's got a, yep. a full, full life. He, he, he's, um, he struggles, though, like all of our, like we do, like teenagers today do, struggles with things that he can't quite articulate. He's struggling with his own desires, um, not in an angsty, super angsty way, but kind of not sure. Yeah, tries dating a girl, doesn't really quite work. Doesn't know what to do with that. Um, You know, he defends someone that he meets. You know, sees being bullied, and realizes that there's actually something more there about that. So the kinds of things that in that really important time of our lives, but you know, when we're teenagers, when we're struggling to. Identify even for ourselves a lot of the stuff that's going on. That's what's going on underneath. Yeah, and of course, right? You know, it starts to. He's, you know, it's it's his birthday, and it's his time to kind of come into this superpower. And he starts instead of it being like inside, and he can't figure it out. It starts to. He starts to get this rash, yeah. and the rash starts to harden, and inch by inch becomes this rock hard, crusted, epidural layer. And he's like, what is going on? And he learns some of his backstory from his uncle and, you know, what happened to the mom that's you know, wasn't able to be there, you know, um, uh, you know, as he grew up, right? He was conceived in virgin superhero yes. birth, right? Yes. So, like Wonder Woman in a way, right? But so I'm pulling from DC, even though I'm more of a Marvel guy. Um, but yeah, so he learns that there's a curandera, a cu- actually a curandero, uh, in the in his before he was born that the mother went to um, because she wanted a child and basically shaped, molded, um, you know, this you know this um, peat from volcanic heat. And from Mexican obsidian and earthen clay. So, yeah, there's, I love it. I don't know. I'm loving it.
0: Can you talk about Frederick? One of the things that comes up, and I'm curious how much of this was your invention, how much of this was rooted in the kind of framework mythology they gave you. You talk about him as having two spirits. Mm-hmm. And that's both a sort of mythological, comic mythological reference in terms of where his powers come from. But I think that's also a reference to his sexuality and. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Kind of the concept of gender that's that's a real thing. Can you talk about that? Sort of connect those? Yeah.
1: Two? Yeah. So um, thanks for bringing that up. So, like I said, like if we think of Hector and David, who are the editors of Cheese Comics as Stanley and Jack Kirby, here's an idea. All right, Aldama, go. We trust that you're going to build an. A story world that's gonna like grow from this, and with your artist, you're gonna do something cool. So that's what I did. You know, every this everything is pretty much my story world building with um Yermo, the um, artist. And this includes the backstory of the curandero, who is a two-spirit, and also the the beginning of the kind of characterizing the building of pete this is him by the way, um learning with Pistio George how to control his his um his power right his this deep internal stuff that he hasn't been able to figure out and to focus it and to use it in a way right as a superpower um Right, yeah, here, and that's this tech, tech up bottle, this um, double-sided, um, sided uh, tech bottle, double-sided, um, and this is also rooted in Mesoamerican warrior cultures. So the tech bottle, which is this really awesome, you know, um, double-sided weapon, knife, if you will. Um, learning how to control that, learning, you know, but there's still a lot that he needs to kind of. His journey is just beginning. His journey, um, two spirit. The, the two spirit, traditionally, both in you know Mesoamerican indigenous cultures, North American Indian cultures, and they're everywhere in the world. Cultures um, were the kind of um, the revered, the kind of shaman uh, figures, the ones that were the healers and the storytellers and they were gender fluid. They didn't identify one way or the other. And, you know, I think Pete's, you know, kind of in that space right now. And I think it's a good space to be in. And it's also, you know, good for readers of this comics, not not only to see Pete and to maybe see themselves as a Latino superhero dealing with all of these internal um, struggles and kind of figuring out how we might i don't know express them um but also those internal struggles you know being you know struggles around issues of sexuality and gender yeah so you'd mentioned earlier the kind of exhaustion of the
0: uh comic book movie industry i think notably in particular marvels had a few flops in a row mm-hmm. or or if not quite flops not staggering successes how is the comic book industry itself doing right now? I'm so far out of the loop. I grew up doing mm-hmm. this, you did, which is you get that you know once a month the new issue arrives, you pay a, bu- a buck or buck twenty five for it or something like that. Mm-hmm. Does that still exist in a sort of healthy way? Are people reading the paper editions? Are they reading right. them on their you know iPad? Are there other things going on that I'm not aware of? You know who. Mm-hmm. where is the comic book industry or is it all graphic novels one-off graphic novels like what's going on what industry are you guys trying to plug into in a hopefully successful way
1: yeah it could um so mcu is the kind of myth, and i don't even know if it's worth like getting in too deep with that i mean my i understood when martin scorsese was like MCU is ruining cinema. And he didn't mean superheroes are ruining cinema. He, I think, meant that the big tent, huge amount of marketing and money that gets pumped into these blockbuster films is, has basically not only sh- overshadowed but pushed into corners and even out the door um, really good stories that um, could be and should be and are being made in, in film. But let's move to comics um, itself. So the direct-to-market comics, which was really a big thing in the 80s when we started to see comic book stores opening. Um, as you remember, you know, in the early um, 2000s, we also saw lots of graphic novels and comics, especially manga and things like Borders and Barnes and & Noble. Um, so that was after a period in the... In the nineties, actually, when the floppies, the more ephemeral kind of comic, was starting yeah. to see a big like drop. And, you know, both industry and artists were really smart. They're like, okay, let's let's create monster big story arcs with these serialized comics, knowing that once they've been serialized, they're gonna be collected and remarketed as a graphic novel. Yeah. Right. So, that was really significant. You have a graphic novel on your bookshelf now. You have them in libraries because libraries can actually, like, they last, right? Whereas comic yeah. books, it's, it's impossible. So, so, that was really important. Now, that said, um, and, the, you know, still doing really well, Scholastic outruns Marvel and DC by a gazillion miles, and Scholastic is a publisher that has cornered the middle school and teen market for graphic novels. Raina Talgemeier is like their big champion. Oh, sure. Okay, just to give you a frame of reference. Honestly, Raina is probably, she's a a very quiet, lovely person, would never do this. She could probably be in the Fortune 500 top earners Of like twenty, the last decade, Scholastic is making. In other words, if that's any measure of the popularity of visual storytelling, well, it tells you everything. It Scholastic outsells most of the big. the big East Coast yeah. publishers that are doing novels. I'm thinking of things I mean,
0: my kids write, is that like Dogman and like and like Captain yeah. Underpants? Are those all scholastic? There? Yes. Yes. No, oh, yes. that's interesting. I didn't know that. I mean, I yeah. I've known those individual things, but I didn't realize there was this whole sort of behemoth scholastic yeah. Yeah. publishing house underneath it.
1: So now Pyro class will be in our comic book stores. Um, yeah. right here. Austin Books and Comics. It'll be, you know, available all over the country in comic book stores. But you're right. I mean, the internet has been a game changer, especially for those who um, aren't where the doors to this kind of a comic that is being distributed across the country in comic book stores have access. And by that, I mean things like Kickstarter and the internet, and yeah. those have definitely opened the field. We're seeing more Latina comic book storytellers, uh, LGBTQ, um, intersectional, Black, Brown, also all sorts of stories. And yes, the short answer to your question is, it is an incredible time to be putting these kinds of stories out in the world. And it's also incredible because there is a hungry audience for it. So from a sort of just purely commercial point of view,
0: when you're imagining a comic book like this, do you have to be thinking not just about each successive episode, issue of the of his story, but that they need to be able to be collected into a graphic novel on the one hand, and then we have to have an eye out to TV and film as well. Is that just part of the model?
1: Mm. Yeah, so we live in what we call a convergence culture, absolutely. So not only TV and film, but toys. Mm. Um, you name it, it's endless, right? So, um action figures. I have a 3D printer in the Latinx pop lab so that, you know, my students and I can, you know, basically send over to the printer and a superhero that we just drew or, you know, created. Um, Definitely. So not only the big arcs, but where is this within convergence culture? I'm going to share another image here with you. So this is the Steampunketta Chronicles, which you mentioned. And... This one is only going to get a Issue 1 limited edition release in July, and then we're going to save what could have been all of the serially published issues after. We're going to actually hold them back and just publish the graphic novel. Um, but there is also, I'm developing right now concurrently, the cartoon uh-huh. and the video game. So to, to your point, yeah, it is it is a... There's no way you can think of comics anymore as isolated storytelling kind of phenomena. It's interesting. Um, I'm just looking at it, looking at this, and it's interesting in a way,
0: it's almost surprising in a way that comic books took as long as they did to become the source material for TV and movies, because they're just... They're like storyboards, right? It's like... It did. It, it's doing. It's actually much easier to adapt, in a sense, than what was the novels, which for a long time were a more traditional source of material for. But you have to go through the whole process of adapting a novel into storyboards and dialogue. And comic books, it's like I'm mean, not that there's no adaptation, but it's all right there. It's already been it A lot of it. Yeah. Most, most of the text is dialogue already. Yep. Um, and it may have been just, I don't know if it was the technical challenge of realizing these sort of fabulous worlds or not, but it's it's surprising the way that it took as long as it did for them to get it right, because as, as, as you certainly know, and probably people on this know, Marvel had a long history of screwing up of ridiculous movie adaptations that were total flops and are just jokes at this point, yeah. right? You go to the yeah. draft house in Austin and you go to see a Spider-Man movie, you'll get treated to clips beforehand of all the ridiculous Spider-Man adaptations they did before they finally figured it out, what, in the 90s or something like that.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I would even say, I would go so far as to say that we didn't really figure out Spider-Man until Sam Raimi came along, so that would be like the early 2000s, but, um, but you're right. So part of it too is, um, okay, yes, when I write this script and whether it's Guillermo or in this case it's Miguel and I share it with the artist Um and I kind of we work you know I go through it with them that script okay it's like page one panel one um, <laughs> l- long shot um, exterior <laughs> exterior <laughs> yeah. crane you know whatever right I mean yeah. it literally like in fact if you didn't even want to look at the comic and, you know, what we're seeing here in front of us, all you do is take my script and you can <laughs> make your cartoon yeah. or your film. It's, um, so, yeah, the comic book writing, uh, the language and the way I have to, vi- you know, lay out. Okay, so the way I visualize it is very much film language. Now, of course, I'm also thinking, is this going to be a four panel Page, a six panel page? Am I going to just make this a splash page? And I also work with the artist because they're super intuitive and they're like, no, um, Aldama or Fede, as I'm called, um, let's not do a splash page here. It just doesn't work. Let's, let's, let's like, you know, build, do more of a slow build to this or whatever. So, um, but you're right the language is there and it's almost readily servable to you know anybody who'd want to make something out of this I guess maybe a final question I have for you is
0: what does it feel like to have your the the, the images you see in your head or the text that you write down mm-hmm. realized in comic book art I know this okay. is the first yeah. time that happened but you know okay, is,
1: yeah no it's Honestly, it must be the same feeling that, um, not all, but let's say, um, when it's done well, many authors of alphabetic fiction, if you will, get when they see their movie made, a movie made of their book or whatever. Now, um, there is a, it's not like I haven't seen stuff that leads up to, so, right, you know we're in process constantly, like even with Pete's character, um, I was like Guillermo, I'm not sh-. like, do we have to like, does Pete have to be that light skinned? Yeah. He's Irish Mexican. Okay. But maybe we can like, can you dark, you know, darken his hair a little bit and give him less, you know, kind of a jawline. I mean, you know, um, or in the case of the steam um, with Miguel, Miguel, um, you know, Sochi is actually Filipina, Latina, Um, so we want to make sure that in her person and her color, you know, the color palette we use, it's a little bit different to, you know, the other character is Afro, Latina, etc. So, there's a lot of kind of work with the artist. That said, I can tell you, when I do get the fully, like, colored page from, like, I just yesterday, Miguel sent me um, five pages that he'd colored after sketching them. I was on the floor. I was just like, um, you know, and I'm gonna I I'm gonna share one of them with you because the, you know, it's not just the it's not just the design, the characters, all that stuff. It's um oh my gosh, the colors um that he he's from the Yucatan and so he understands Caribbean colors better than than I could ever. And um so, here's an example of... Um, That's cool. Yeah. So, um, isn't that just... Yeah. And the detail and the color, like the water on the underbelly of the crocodiles and just the movement and the greens and the blue of the water and the turquoise, uh, it's just like... Yeah. Pff. It's awesome. So, yeah, <laughs> I'm literally pulli- pull- peeling myself off the floor. Like Yeah. Yeah. You know. um, Well, that's great, Frederick. Thank you so much for doing this. Congratulations. Is it out yet? Is the first issue out? Pyro Class drops November 22nd. And um, um, yeah, it was nice. Really great to be here, Dan. Thank you for inviting me. It looks like someone's typing something right now. Um, But yeah, it was... um, Let me just... My final word is... Yeah. If you don't know comics or haven't... Um, had the chance or opportunity to dive into the stories that are being told through comics, give them a chance. Um, I think they can be as mind-blowing and complex and sophisticated and entertaining as the best, you know, art house movie or the best, you know, highbrow novel or piece of art hanging in a museum. Um, So, yeah. Yeah, well, we will, you
0: know, we've done this with you before, I think, gotten your sort of recommendations, but we'll do it again for people who, because it's also, that's all true, it's also overwhelming when you're not familiar with the universe, with the world of comics, kind of where to start. Um, mm-hmm. You can mm-hmm. maybe we'll get your curated list of, of where people should, should enter. And I think it's also nicely different from when you and I were growing up. There's a lot more in the libraries than there used to be. Mm-hmm. It oh. wasn't anywhere to go. I mean, you were fortunate to have somebody who let you kind of read them in the store, but otherwise, you had to shell out what ended up being a lot of money for like these mm-hmm. short little things to be able to read them. And and now it's a lot. It's not perfect, but it's a lot better and more accessible than it was. I think when we, when you and I were growing up. Uh, well, thank you. We'll we'll do one again sometime for another another product of yours, Frederick. And thanks to those of you who joined us. Yeah. All thank right, you, Dan. Have a okay. good one. Take care. Bye bye.
1: Into the Coliverse is produced by the University of Texas at Austin's College of Liberal Arts. Sound engineering by the Liberal Arts Instructional Technology Services. You can find Into the Coliverse podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Thanks for listening and see you next time.